Father, thank you for this day. Lord, it was a day that wasn't promised to us, and yet you've given it to us. And I pray that we would rejoice in it and be glad in it and use it in a way that brings honor to you. Lord, use this hour and the hour following um, to greatly benefit your people. Lord, um, lead us to worship you for who you are and consider your faithfulness to us. Um, as we look into the scriptures now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I will confess it's both a blessing and a curse when the elders don't tell me what they want me to teach on. The curse is that there's so many things to choose from, right? There's so many worthwhile topics, so many things that are worth investigating. Um, it can be hard to decide. Um, so more often than not, I simply just try to think of something that I myself need to learn. And maybe that's selfish, but nevertheless, um, there's usually, or there's always, something that I need to learn. And as of late, I certainly know, um, perhaps I'm not alone in the room to realize that um, I could definitely continue to grow in the area of prayer. Um, there's probably not any one of us that would say that we're content right now with the status of our prayer lives, um, me chief among them. So yes, we're embarking on a six-week study of prayer starting today. Um, and if that wasn't enough to make you head for the exit, we're also going to be in the Old Testament, which hopefully that won't make you want to leave either. But I also think that um, that's another area where I have to learn as well, that I think that we're very prone to neglect the Old Testament. Um, we spend most of our time in the teaching here in the church in the New Testament, and there's good reason for that. Um, but we shouldn't neglect the Old. There's much there that we can learn and um, really, as I've been preparing for this series, um, I would honestly say that I've seen things in the scripture, I've seen things about our Lord um, that I really hadn't seen in the same light until now. So perhaps the Lord will teach us all um, through his inspired word today. Uh, what we're going to do for the next six weeks is we're going to look at six different prayers, although more accurately, a couple of them are songs or psalms. In fact, the one today we're looking at is one of those. It's really a song, more so than a prayer, the way that you and I might think of a prayer. But we're going to look at prayers or praise, six different instances throughout the Old Testament. We're going to run from today in Exodus, and we will end up on our sixth week um, very near the place where the Old Testament closes historically in the book of Nehemiah. So we'll see hopefully a broad variety where you will hear from both men and women Next week, we'll be looking at Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. Um, the way we're going to do this, as your notes sheet says, we're going to look at four C words. First of all, we're going to look at the character. That is, who is this person that prayed this prayer? We're going to look at the context, as in why was this prayer prayed? What was the situation that this biblical character found themselves in to issue forth this prayer? We'll look at the context. Uh, thirdly, we'll look at the content. That'll be most um, of our time for the clock, anyway. Uh, what is what is in this prayer? What do we see here? What does it teach us? There's going to be rich doctrine every week when we look at the content of these prayers. Um, but then finally, and I think uh, possibly most importantly, we're going to look at the counsel. That is, what can these prayers teach us about the way that we should pray? Um, that's really the chief thing that I would like to learn for myself myself. 
when I seek to become a better prayer. And so hopefully we'll use each of these um, to learn from how we might better pray. So go ahead, turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Exodus chapter 15. Of course, our character today needs little to no introduction. Um, if you grew up in the church, you've been hearing about him since you were a toddler. And he's Moses. Um, as I was thinking about this this week, sometimes I think about things that maybe aren't that worthwhile. Um, if I were to make a list of the top five biblical characters, or even the top three, where would Moses be in that list? Well, he's not going to be number one, but he's going to be definitely in the top five, I think. Um, he's no stranger to most of us. Just a few details of his life as we consider Moses' character. Um, his life spanned 120 years, divided neatly or providentially into three segments of 40 years each. His first 40 years of his life were lived in Egypt. His next 40 years were lived in a place called Midian, which is to the east of Egypt on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula. And then his final 40 years were lived in the wilderness with Israel as they were making their way to the promised land. He was, of course, born to a Hebrew family, and we know that his name means draw out, or more specifically, to be drawn out of the water. Because we know that he was placed in a basket in the River Nile by his mother as an infant because they were seeking to save his life from Pharaoh. Pharaoh, of course, at that time had given the order to slaughter all of the baby boys that were born to those infamously fertile Hebrew women. Of course, some years before that, another Pharaoh, and we're not sure which Pharaoh this might have been, but some years before Moses was born, Pharaoh realizes that he has an unexpected problem on his hands. Because some years before that, hundreds of years in fact, Jacob's family, we know, some 70 in number, had come to settle in Egypt. This is how the book of Genesis ends. They came to live in Egypt, and in the course of all those hundreds of years since, the Hebrews had multiplied greatly. They had become now perhaps a number of 600,000 600, men, which when you add in the wives and the children, at this point in time where our story picks up, uh, Israel could have numbered about two million people. And Pharaoh realizes that they were becoming too numerous and that he had a problem of national security on his hands. And so he hatches a twofold plan to deal with this problem. Uh, first of all being, I'm gonna put them in subjugation, put them in slavery, have them work for me. And secondly, he planned to reduce their number by killing their baby boys at birth. So uh, Moses is drawn out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter. His life is spared from Pharaoh's edict, and Moses grows up as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's household with all the advantages that that would have offered. Really, Moses grew up as part of the Egyptian nobility. But at the same time, he grew up seeing all of his fellow Hebrews in slavery. He saw them mistreated, oppressed, repressed, and depressed in slavery, and certainly that made an impact on him. That affected him deeply, and we know what happens. We're not going to go into all the details, um, but through an unexpected turn of events, Moses ends up having to leave Egypt to flee for his life, and that's when he goes to Midian. He intends, I think, to live out the rest of his days there as a shepherd 
until flickering flames on a bush catches his eye. And of course, on and on the story goes, he ends up coming back to Egypt. God commissions Moses to be the one through whom the Hebrews are going to be saved out of captivity. And this is where our story almost occurs. So again, God sends plagues upon Egypt, one after one, one after the other, the other. Finally, the tenth plague, the, the, the death of the firstborn, comes upon Egypt, and um, Pharaoh gives the order, Exodus 12, verse 31, and the, as the NASB puts it, rise up and get out. And so God, through Moses, leads the people out, immediately providing protection in the pillar of cloud and fire, and then leading through the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. So all that has now taken place. They've crossed the Red Sea in safety, and this is where chapter 15 picks, picks up. But briefly, flip the page. I'm going to read one verse from chapter 14, Exodus 14, verse 4, because this will give us a little bit of God's intention and why he did what he did. And this will help inform the way we read chapter 15. So this is Exodus 14, verse 4. This is God speaking. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So it could be said that the exodus of God's people was not simply the end. It was not just the goal of what God wanted to do with his people. But in addition to that, there was also a means to something. God leading his people out was a means to the end of God's glorification and exaltation. Regarding verse 4, a commentator has said that a better reading of that, rather than honored through Pharaoh, is that God said that he was going to be honored over Pharaoh. God was determined to do something that would put his glory on display, put his majesty and his power on display, not simply putting his mercy and his grace upon saving his own people, but displaying himself as glorious and majestic in the eyes of the Egyptians. So that context, I hope, will inform the way we read chapter 15. We're going to take this a little bit at a time, but notice on your handout, I've divided it into four sections, but they're not in order, and that's on purpose. We're going to go through, I'm sorry, I said four sections, five sections. The middle section, the third section of this prayer, is actually going to come at the end so just watch for that. That's the way your handout is organized. So, let me read Exodus 15, verses 1 through 3. And here we'll see the first part of our outline. This is the past salvation of Israel. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. So they've crossed safely the Red Sea, and Moses breaks forth and prays, remembering that Pharaoh's army, his horses and his soldiers, the horses and the riders, although this is chariotry, not cavalry, 
that were all drowned in the Red Sea. And as such, the Egyptians' armies being defeated, Moses declares that the Lord, and the term that Moses uses throughout this song is the Lord, or Yahweh, the term that we know as God's covenant name. That's how Moses describes God in this, in this song. Yahweh has shown his greatness over and against Egypt, over and against Pharaoh, over and against the greatest army of the day. Verse 2, though, Moses said, not only is God highly exalted, but he also has become Moses' salvation and his strength and his song. Now, some number of weeks or months before this occurred, when the Lord did appear to Moses in the burning bush, God committed three things to Moses. He committed to, uh, to Moses his presence, as in he told Moses, I will go with you. He committed to Moses his name. He told him, I am who I am. It's Yahweh. And he committed to Moses his covenant promises, which was, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt and into a land flowing with milk and honey. So now Moses is just on the other side of completing that first task of what God had commissioned him to do. But how had Moses done it? What had been his strength? Well, Moses says that it was the Lord that was his strength. And I think that we should understand that it would have been seen by Moses that it was God's presence with him and God's name, that is who God was, and that also is typified by God's character. And then all of that, I think, was made more sure by the promise that God had made to Moses. And so this all put together, I think, had been Moses' strength, and now... It results in this worshipful song. I mean, if you really think about the fact that Moses thought he was going to live out his days in a backwater as a shepherd, and then think about the things that he saw in Egypt throughout the ordeal of the plagues, now what he's seen in the Red Sea crossing, I don't think his life is turning out the way he had expected but here he is with his Hebrews, his fellow Hebrews, saved from the pursuit of Pharaoh's army. And he says very clearly the Lord had been his strength and his song. He worships him. But there's one more thing we shouldn't neglect. Verse 3. In addition to being his strength and his song, Moses says this in verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. When it says the Lord is a warrior, another way we could say that is literally the Lord is a man of war. Now that may sound strange to our ears, thinking about God as a man of war. But one of our commentators is helping us understand this as this, quote, This is a vigorous affirmation of God's opposition to evil and all that rises against his purposes and his people, end quote. So think about what lay ahead of them. Now, I don't think they had any way to know this, but soon enough, Israel would find herself repeatedly arrayed in battle against the armies of the world in their world at that time. Soon enough, they'd face their very first enemy on the battlefield, the Amalekites. And not only would they stand against the nation's armies in battle, 
they would stand against the nations philosophically or really spiritually. Because Israel was a very peculiar people. One of those reasons was they worshipped only one God. One of the things that set them apart from any other nation at that time was that they were monotheists. God is one, and they worshipped him as such. And so they were countercultural from the beginning. And yet the Lord would be fighting for his people. And in fact, I would say that if the Lord didn't fight for them, well, then they wouldn't have made it. Something that might be helpful as we think about the Lord as a warrior. Another commentary, this is Douglas Stewart, says this, quote, He, that is God, was to define their battles for them, deciding when and where to go to war. They were to have no allies, no dependency on other foreign powers, no confidence in any other earthly deliverer, but only in the one true God, their God, Yahweh. In a fallen world hostile to his purposes, Yahweh must be a warrior. The same must be said, of course, for God's Son, who is of necessity a warrior on behalf of his people and will be the final destroyer of all things opposed to God. Now again, that's not something we often think about in terms of who Jesus is. God's Son also as a warrior? Well, the scriptures clearly portray him as that. In fact, flip towards the end of your Bible. We'll come back to Exodus very quickly. Look at Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 19. As we think about the idea that not only God the Father, but also God the Son being a warrior. Revelation 19, I'll read verses 11 through 16. John writes, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat upon it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress on the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's very obvious here that Jesus is also a warrior. It's unmistakable. I don't think Moses could have known anything about that at this time. But we know that it's true that there would come a day when God would send his ultimate salvation for his people in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He would deal a death blow to the serpent of Eden, giving himself on Calvary's cross and rising again over the power and the penalty of death. And then as we just read at the conclusion of all battles, Jesus proving that the Lord is a man of war. I think we should read Exodus chapter 15 in this light, that really the Exodus is the first of Israel's military victories. Now that may sound strange also considering, and it's true, that Moses and the Hebrews didn't have to raise a finger in this victory. 
So how could it really be termed a victory if they didn't really have to do anything? Well, I suppose they had to do one thing, and that was face a dry riverbed in front of them, towering walls of water on either side, and they had to walk through. The ground was dry, but I think it still took a pretty good act of faith to walk across that sea. So they had to have faith, they had to have faith, but in the end, or on the whole, I think that the Exodus, the Red Sea crossing, is a very clear picture of God's sovereignty and salvation, which is to say that here was a people that could not have saved themselves. They would have died in slavery if God had not intervened. And I think Moses recognizes this. I think the whole point of it was that God was the warrior and God beat his enemy, defeated his enemy for a people that couldn't have done it for themselves. So what exactly took place? Well, verses 4 through 10 tell us. It says this. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. And the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. And they went down into the depths like a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellence, thou dost overthrow those who rise up against thee. Thou dost send forth thy burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. And at the blast of thy nostrils, the waters are piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand shall, de shall destroy them. Verse 10, thou didst blow with thy wind. Sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So Moses recounts in detail what exactly happened to Pharaoh's army. Verses 6 and 7 are important in this segment of the song. Now obviously, verse 6, God does not have a right hand or a left hand for that matter. God is spirit, but oftentimes the biblical writer will give, will personify, give some sort of kind of human attribute to God to help us understand, I think, that God is not just a nebulous force. While he's not flesh, that is God, yet he is a person. God in three persons, blessed trinity. So oftentimes this right hand kind of imagery is used by the biblical writer in a particular display of God's power. And that's what God has done here. The power of God is majestic and achieves just what the Lord intended. In this case, the shattering of the enemy. And then more generally in verse 7, we see an important theological truth that God will eventually destroy all those who are opposed to him. The first half of verse 7 again, in the greatness of thine excellence thou dost overthrow those who rise up against thee. It's important for us to understand that God is not simply love. And we know that. I think that here at Calvary we get a pretty balanced view of who God is. And really, remarkably, this song, this song of Moses, gives us a very balanced view of who God is. He is not simply love and grace. He is also judgment and wrath. 
To this end, one more quote that might be helpful. Because sometimes we think that these are somehow in conflict with one another. Douglas Stewart writes this, quote, God's eventual destruction of those who are opposed to him and his anger against evil are not opposed to God's majesty, but are in fact inherent aspects of it. Modern sentimentalist thinking wants God to be ever tolerant, always soft-hearted, and thus defines God's justice as something other than how the Bible defines it. In fact, the just God revealed in the Bible will not tolerate evil, although he is extremely patient in waiting for repentance, as he was for at least 80 years with the Egyptians. But he still plans for evil's total elimination. And people who insist on being part of the process of evil will be eliminated as well. Moses understands this. He understands that this is part of God's nature. And he worships the Lord for it. As he describes what happens to Pharaoh's army, we should be thinking of other occasions, perhaps, when God used water to bring judgment. This is certainly not the only time in Scripture when God used water to bring judgment. The first and most obvious probably is the flood in Genesis, where God judged the entire population of the world except for Noah's family, shining them in water. Also, you might think of Jonah, who most certainly would have drowned in the waters of God's judgment had God not sent the fish to save them. Also think of perhaps the psalmist in Psalm 42, where in the depths of his depression, he feels like he is being inundated. Even the phrase, the depths of depression, kind of has a picture of being in water, drowning in water. And then even Jesus used this imagery. In Luke chapter 12, he looked forward to the cross and described it as a baptism that he had to undergo. That is, the waters of God's divine judgment. So Pharaoh's army met a fate that was not unique to them. And in verse 9, Moses reminds us that Egypt's plans to pursue and overtake the fleeing Israelites were entirely thwarted. Pharaoh thought he knew what he was going to go do. He was going to go get the Israelites back. He kind of has a moment of realizing, oh, what have I done? I let them go. I've got to go get them back. He was determined to be satisfied in his quest to get them back. And yet in the end, it was God who was satisfied. Although, if we kind of think for a moment, wouldn't it have just been enough for Israel to have been saved? Let them cross over the Red Sea in safety and leave Pharaoh's army behind, confused in the cloud as they were at first. Why did God really need to destroy Pharaoh's army? Wouldn't it have been enough to just save Israel and leave the army intact? Well, on the one hand, you may have red flags flying because you're thinking, well, we can't really examine God's motives, and that's true. We cannot always know why God does things the way he does. And Keith reminded us of this last week Oftentimes, God's motives are in that category of things from Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. But there are still times when we can know why God does the things that he does. Sometimes just his character makes it clear 
the reasons that he does things that he does. But sometimes there are cases where he tells us specifically in the scripture why he's done what he did. What his motives really were. And I think this is one of those cases when you think about the way that God delivered Israel. Flip back again briefly. Um, I already read Exodus 14.4. Look back at chapter 13. Exodus 13 verse 14. kind of says the same thing. It says, and it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. So with a powerful hand, God did this. And then again, we already read 14.4, which spoke of God being honored through or over Pharaoh. So in the fullness of the display of God's power, he was determined to do something that would put his majesty on display. And he was saying something about himself that would resonate far beyond the borders of Egypt. If you think about that, we're going to skip verses 11 through 13 for now. And let's look down at 14 through 16 as we consider the defeat of Israel's future foes. I'll read 14, and I'll I'll just read the first half of verse 16. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they are motionless as stone. Now, as I said before, Israel would repeatedly find themselves battling against these other nations that Moses mentions here. And it's interesting to note, um, well, perhaps interesting to me anyway, that um, Moses is speaking almost in past tense in these verses. He's saying that the peoples have heard, anguish has gripped them, they were dismayed, they trembled, they have melted away, And yet, these things haven't happened yet. Now, Moses is considered one of the prophets. And here, what he's doing is he is looking forward to things that would happen in the future. And if I'm right about this, this is what scholars call the prophetic perfect. The tense that Moses is speaking in. He's speaking of future things that haven't happened yet, but it's as if they have already happened. And the reason for that, I think, is because they are certain to happen. There is no doubt that these things will not come about. And so Moses looks forward to these things, these nations, these future enemies that Israel will face, and he describes what's going to happen to them. And again, you may also be thinking already of some other scriptures that are similar to this, particularly think of Joshua, when they're right on the cusp of entering the promised land. They're about to go into Jericho. Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. This is Rahab speaking to the the spies that were spying out the land. And she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. These are the exact same words that Moses had used. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. 
And then Rahab goes on to explain or recount things that have happened to other nations that Israel faced. It's worth noting that oftentimes the Israelites weren't, or I'm sorry, the enemies of Israel, they weren't so much scared of Israel as a fighting force, but they were terrified of Israel's God. Rahab knew this. Their reputation preceded them. See, Yahweh's reputation as a warrior had persisted for years and spread across languages and cultures and borders. So God is seeking glory for himself, and he will be satisfied in his quest, even in the destruction of Israel's enemies, all those that are opposed to God. Again, I don't think Moses knew this, but he and the Israelites would be on the bleeding edge of what it looked like for God to bring himself glory and judgment over his foes. Moses rejoices confidently in this, looking forward to what will happen in the future and what the Lord would do on Israel's behalf. So that's the defeat of future foes. And then the last part of the song speaks of Israel's future salvation. The second half of verse 16 through 18 says this, Until thy people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom thou hast purchased, thou wilt bring them and plant them in the mountain of thy inheritance, the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thy dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Moses' confidence in the fact that God would be fighting for them and would be defeating their future enemies also gave Moses a confidence that God would also keep his covenant promise he had made to him and will one day lead them into the land of their inheritance. Now, I don't think Moses had any way to know that he himself, tragically, wouldn't be able to enter into the promised land But there were at least two things he was confident of. One, God will faithfully bring his children into the land of their inheritance. And number two, importantly, God will dwell among them there. Moses reminds us that he's talking about a specific place where God was going to dwell, and that's Jerusalem, the place where he was leading his people. Now we know that God is everywhere present, But of course, for the benefit of his people, he chooses, he chose to kind of localize his presence with his people. And I think perhaps as a child and younger person, when I thought about the promised land, you know, here's again, from from being a toddler, we've heard these stories. Israel making their way to the promised land. I think I probably just thought of the promised land as a wonderful place, scenic, the milk, the honey, It was a bountiful place, and of course, it would never be anything less than that. But really, I think the thing that I missed, and I don't know when I began to realize what it really was about the promised land, but really, it was going to be a place not just where God wanted his people to live, but it was a place where God would live with them. It was about God dwelling with his people. Again, verse 17, Thy place, the place, O Lord, which thou hast made 
for thy dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. So Moses knew again, and this was some time before this, that God had made the promise to Moses that he was going to do this. He was going to lead them out to the land of their inheritance. And now that Moses has begun that journey, he's given even more confidence to know that, yes, it really will happen. God will bring us to the place where he will dwell with us. So we've seen Israel's past salvation. We've seen the defeat of their foes in the past. We've seen the future defeat of their enemies, and we've seen their future salvation in the promised land. Now, what's the glue that holds all this together? Well, I think that verses 11 through 13 give us the answer to that. The glue that holds it all together. Those verses say this. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Thou didst stretch out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. In thy loving kindness thou hast led thy people whom thou hast redeemed. In thy strength thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. I think we see here Moses focusing on God's attributes and his character. Several of them we see, first of all, in verse 11. This is what Arthur Pink, I think, would describe as the solitariness of God. Who is like thee among the gods? Well, obviously we know the answer to that question. It's no one. Moses realizes that there's no other God like Yahweh. So he's solitary. We also see God's majesty as especially revealed in his holiness in verse 11. And then in verse 13, the end of the verse, we see his strength, that it's God's strength that has led them as he has. And then I think the most important glue that holds all this together, and I'll try to demonstrate why I think that, um, is in the beginning of verse 13, where he says, In thy loving kindness thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed. That's what the NAS says. Loving kindness is the key word. If you have the ESV, it says steadfast love. Those are two different ways of translating that all-important Hebrew word, hesed. This is God's covenant love for his chosen people, or covenant faithfulness. Another way to say it is this is the love to which God has obligated himself to, and with a specific purpose in mind. You cannot speak of a covenant except that you understand that there are two parties involved. There's an agreement made. A binding agreement and God's covenant love is expressed toward and only towards his covenant people. As we think about what loving kindness or steadfast love means, listen to the way Dale Ralph, Dale Ralph Davis describes it. This is important, I think, for us to understand. He says, it's not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. A love that gives itself in covenant and gladly promises devoted love in that covenant. And then the covenant partner then rests in security of that promise. And then in the future, they can appeal to that. And we're going to see this repeatedly in the next six weeks. This concept of God's steadfast love, his loving kindness, 
is going to show up in most of the prayers that we're going to look at. Now, I didn't plan it that way, but doing what I do, I make charts and graphs for fun. And so one day, this was, I think, back in Christmas break, as I'm thinking about all these passages that I'm going to be going through, I made a chart. How many of God's attributes show up in all these prayers? And it was interesting to see the ones that were repeatedly showing up over and over again. And this is one of those, his loving kindness. And there's others that show up repeatedly, but this one shows up often, and not just in the prayers that we're looking at in this series, but you look at the Psalms, you look at Isaiah, on many occasions you see that the biblical writers appeal to this character of God, this attribute of God, his loving kindness. They appeal to that as they're praying to him, as in, Lord, you have obligated yourself to this kind of love. And now, Lord, in light of that, please do whatever it is they're asking for. I think that this is the key to Moses' prayer. Um, he realizes, I think the crux of what he is saying in the midst of all this, is that the redemption of God's people is always founded upon God's steadfast love for his people. Again, the redemption of God's people is always founded upon God's steadfast love for his people. And that's true, of course, not only in Moses' day, but it's true today as well. It's true for us. Um, now, it's interesting that this came fairly early in Moses' um, completion of the task God had given him. Flip forward, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20. And we will see this concept reappear. This is in the midst of him receiving the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. I'll just read verses 5 and 6. Where it says, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. There's that same word, and then one more time, flip forward, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This is when Moses is receiving the new set of tablets after he had broke the first set. And God is going to reveal something to Moses here on the mountain, verse 6. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So in both of these, chapter 20 and chapter 34, we see both sides of it. We see that, yes, God does judge but over and against that for God's particular chosen people accordingly we see that he keeps his loving kindness he keeps his loving kindness for his people because of this because of God's character Moses understands that he's redeemed them he's saved them out of slavery and he's going to be bringing them all the way to the place where he had promised them it's worth noting 
before we get to the last part of our outline. Um, but Moses notes again in the end of verse 13, again, he's saying it as if it's already happened. In thy strength thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. It's because of his loving kindness and also his strength that Moses is able to have confidence that God will lead them to the place that he has promised. And he knows that being in God's presence is ultimately the goal for which he's leading his people. So Moses rejoices in all of this, that they've been saved and they're being led to the place where they will get to dwell with the Lord. So if that is the content of the prayer, well then what might be the counsel? How might we learn from this? What could this tell us when it comes to our own prayers or our own praise? Now I'll say this, you've already probably read it on your handout, there's nothing novel about what I think the application is. There's nothing new, we probably already know this, but um, I think it's good for us to be reminded of these things, and really, I do think this is what we see in Moses' prayer. What do we see? First of all, the overarching heading, what do we learn from this, is that we must praise God when we pray. We don't simply ask things of God when we pray. We do ask things of God, but that cannot be the only thing we do. We praise the Lord when we pray. That's the overarching heading. And then three things specifically First of all, I'd say praise God for your salvation. That seems obvious, I realize. But put yourself in Moses' position, or maybe Joe or Jane Israelite's position. And think about if you had been born in slavery in Egypt. Perhaps even your father and mother were born in slavery and their fathers before them. See, they had been in captivity in Egypt for multiple generations. Perhaps it had just become kind of just the way of life. It was hard, no doubt. I can't imagine what living in slavery is like. It was challenging. It was humiliating, I'm sure. But it was probably just a way of life. You may not have realized until after you came out of it, until after you saw what freedom was like, that you realized how bad it was when you were back there in bondage. I think you can only then begin to understand the stark contrast between captivity and freedom. Being taken from a place where you were held, darkness, bondage, and being brought into light, new life, and freedom. And what does that sound like? That sounds like the gospel to me. This is obviously a picture, one picture, exodus of what it's like for you and I. We're taken out of darkness, out of our bondage to sin, and God brings us out of that. He brings us into freedom and new life in Christ. So praise God for your salvation. We'll see more of this theme next week, so I'm not going to dwell on it when we look at Hannah's prayer. But praise God for your salvation. Moses did that. Secondly, praise God for his past faithfulness to you. And then I would say, praise him specifically, not just generally. Now, Moses could have simply said, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, period. That would have been true. That would have been accurate. But I don't think that it would have caused him to worship in the way that he did, except for the fact that he thought specifically, what were all the things that took place in the midst of that? 
What were all the things that God did in order to save us, in order to be faithful to us, to bring us out? We already read verses 4 through 10, and verse count-wise, that's the longest part of the song where Moses is specifically thinking about the things that God had done. So, think about God's past faithfulness to us, and specifically. Um, and perhaps it's also worth noting that the Exodus, of course, I think was the biggest salvific event in the life of Israel all the way up until God sent Jesus to be the ultimate salvation for his people. We see throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament people looking backwards to what God did at the Red Sea in delivering his people. They were constantly referring back to that as the high watermark of God's faithfulness to save his people. And so why do I, why do I say that? Well, I think it's also appropriate for us in our own lives for us to still praise the Lord and thank him for things that he did for us years in the past. Use those things that God has done as a way to remind us of his faithfulness to us. Now think about maybe a big event in your life that happened in the past. We all have them, whether it's finding a spouse or changing a career, moving to a new city, having a child, those kind of large life events. Think about those things. And then try to think about specifically what were the things that God did to bring those things about. Now undoubtedly there would have been obstacles along the way in each of those things. There would have been small little victories and little setbacks that you probably experienced. But ultimately you can probably see God's sovereignty in lots of little things that he was doing in the midst of that. And then you can even think about small things, the way that you're able, well... I'm not belittling serving in the church. Think about a small thing like serving here, sharing the gospel with someone, teaching a child to read. Um, the little things that we've all done or hope to do. Think about how God has brought those things about too. And think about the fact that just like Moses saw, that it's God with his right hand, majestic in power, that is able to accomplish those things in us. So praise God specifically for his faithfulness to you. And I'm not going to dwell on it, but you probably can understand that there's probably some worth in making lists or keeping logs of what the Lord has done, whether it's answered prayer or kind of thinking about those past events, some sort of written record to help you look back to could be helpful. And then finally, our last thing that we might learn from Moses' song is consider God's attributes or consider his character, that is the things that make him God. So meditate on those things in your prayer and in your praise. Now, you may need to educate yourself on what God's attributes are. Now, again, I think that we probably hear a lot about this at Calvary. This is not new to probably anyone. But if you're looking for a place to learn about God's attributes, I've got two suggestions. For most of us, this one right here, the attributes of God, A.W. Pink, would be a great resource. I dare say we should all have this in our libraries. It's small, 
It's divided up into God's attributes. It's a great resource. For those more adventurous, there is Stephen Carnock, The Existence and Attributes of God. This is the 17th century English Puritan um, who spent years, and it's small print too, years writing about God's attributes. So whether it's Carnock or Pink, I think it's worth educating yourself. And of course, the word is where we find his attributes most clearly. Educate yourself, and perhaps even practically pick one for a week. Pick one of the attributes for a week during your prayer time. Meditate on it. Ask yourself the questions that Moses does in verse 11. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness? I think this is helpful. Use his attributes and his character when we pray. And again, I touched on this before, but the reason I think this is important is that understanding who God is, his character, will help us sometimes to understand why he does the things that he does. Not, not all the time. We don't always know why. But I think it will help us have confidence in who he is and what he will do in the future. I think this was Moses' method of praise. He looked backwards. He saw what the Lord had done. He was able to look forward with eyes of faith and see what the Lord would do. And I would say that for us, we might follow his example, look back and see God's faithfulness to us, and then look forward with eyes of faith see what he will do and we worship him because of it so that's the song of the sea next week we'll see one more song hannah's song let me briefly pray then i have two announcements lord thank you for your word that um, if nothing else it reminds us who you are it reveals to us who you are. And thank you for doing that in the midst of um, Moses' song. I pray that you would use your word um, this week in our lives to help us to pray, to help us to have fellowship with you, understanding more of who you are and your faithfulness to us. Lord, let us not forget um, your faithfulness to us in the past. And Lord, help me to um, trust in your faithfulness in the future as Moses did, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.